Jewish views on JW3, a list of Orthodox rabbis call for a boycott of the London-based community centre. Danny LaBelle, the comedian, speaks to us about his show, Broke as a Joke, ahead of appearing at the Edinburgh Fringe. And it's official, Walter Bingham, the oldest speech radio broadcaster, tells us about his new Guinness World Record. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. There's been an angry reaction to the news that seven Orthodox rabbis in London have urged their members to boycott the JW3, the capital's Jewish culture centre, after it held events celebrating lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender Jews. In a letter, the rabbis said LGBT events were in total contradiction to Orthodox Judaism and also complained that JW3 doesn't provide religious education and Torah learning. Dave Shaw from the LGBT group Keshet UK criticised the rabbis for causing divisions between Jews. The European Union's top court has ruled that Hamas, the Islamist group which runs Gaza, should not have been removed from the EU's terrorism blacklist in 2014. A lower court made the ruling, which the Court of Justice says must now be reconsidered. Hamas funds, though, will continue to be frozen pending the outcome. The Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has said that security coordination with Israel will remain frozen despite the removal of metal detectors and security cameras at the Temple Mount, which have been placed at the entrances used by Muslim worshippers. They were installed there just two weeks ago after three Arab Israelis killed two Israeli police officers at the site. At least five Palestinians have died in clashes over the issue. Israel now intends to install new security measures based on advanced technologies. Anti-Semitic incidents in the UK are now at record levels after the charity, which aims to protect the Jewish community, revealed new figures for the first half of 2017. The report, by the Community Security Trust, said there'd been a 30% increase on the same period last year, with 767 anti-Semitic incidents recorded between January and June, of which 80 were classed as assaults. Almost half the total number of incidents were verbal abuse, with pedestrians often targeted from passing cars. As to the perpetrators, more than half were described as white European, with only 5% identified as Arab or North African. Social media was described as the tool of choice for those wanting to abuse or threaten Jewish public figures and institutions. And finally, a Guinness World Record was set for the most dreidels spinning at one time at the Boy Scouts of America's 2017 National Jamboree. Some 820 of the things spun simultaneously for 10 seconds at the event in West Virginia, which was sponsored by the National Jewish Committee on Scouting. The record that was broken, 754, was set in Tel Aviv three years ago. Well, that's the news. My head is spinning a bit. Here's Fran to bring us the sport. Thanks, Viv. Hapoel Beersheva moved a step closer to securing Champions League football next season after they beat Ludogratz in the first leg of their third qualifying round tie on Wednesday night. Going into next week's second leg in Bulgaria with a 2-0 lead, the Israeli champions will be favourites to reach the fourth and final qualifying round, the winners of which will qualify for the group stage of the competition. Elsewhere, Israel's U-20 basketball team fell just short of making history after they were beaten by Greece in the final of the European Championships. 
the third time they've lost in the final, speaking after their 65-56 loss to the tournament hosts, coach Oded Katash said, The players are now entering the real world. I'm sure they will take this experience with them. And finally, a Jewish athlete who was barred from the 1936 Berlin Olympics has died at the age of 103. High jumper Margaret Bergman Lambert, who at the time was a German citizen, was prevented from competing at the Games and passed away in New York this week. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Fran, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off as we always do with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. As we glance over the front page as we start this week's paper review, we can see rabbis demand JW3 boycott over gay festival. I think it pretty much says everything you need to know on the tin, but tell us, Rich, just in case anyone might have missed this. Yeah, I'm, I like to think that there's more that unites the Jewish community than divides us. But looking at this story and reflecting on its ramifications, you know, perhaps that you might think twice about that. So a group of rabbis, seven ultra-Orthodox rabbis have told their respective flocks that JW3 should be a no-go area, the Jewish Cultural Centre on the Finchley Road, because back in March they hosted an event called Gay W3, which was a a celebration of uh, all things gay in the Jewish community. They've caused a bit of a storm. Amongst the seven is uh, Rabbi Bassous, who infamously was the prime mover in the uh, Rabbi Dweck affair, which was sorted a few days ago. But he called on uh, Rabbi Joseph Dweck to stand down as head of the Sephardi movement. So he's got a little bit of previous on this. Well, I Um, would like to point out at this stage that Rabbi Bassus was invited onto this week's programme, but politely declined. So he is targeting JW3. JW3, (laughs) I mean, uh, Rabbi Simonson, Raymond Simonson, (laughs) I should say. (laughs) There's too many rabbis. Although the man can do anything he wants to do, has shown the diplomacy of a Nelson Mandela by saying very little. In fact, all he said is, I'm not going to get into an argument with a group of learned rabbis. He's being absolutely diplomatic and getting dragged into a row. But to see something like JW3, the finest example of Jewish culture in Britain, being dragged through the mud by people who are meant to be leading their communities in a positive way is a very, very disappointing thing to see indeed. Well, I think what's particularly sad about it is that there's probably enough people who will turn on the Jewish community without infight This sort of came up over the last couple of weeks, especially with the Western Wall and the debacle over there. It's just not necessary for Jews to question other Jews because there's enough people who aren't of the Jewish faith that do that already. And we just don't need it within our ranks as well. Anyway, I suppose we can always have a look at some of the other stories making the paper. And also on the front (laughs) page, the tears and trauma after Shabbat massacre. This is a really grim story, isn't it? I mean, it's just about as horrid as it gets. Last Friday, a family was sitting, having their Shabbat meal in their house in the settlement of Halamish, and a Palestinian came into their house and murdered three members of a family. A 70-year-old man called Yosef and his children, Chaya and Elad, both grown adults. This is an utterly horrific story in a week or fortnight which has seen violence and tensions erupt across Jerusalem and the West Bank. And... There doesn't really seem to be an end to this because there are certain pinch points in this conflict which are not going to be solved overnight. And one of these is access to Temple Mount, the site holy to Muslims and Jews. 
Israel installed metal detectors at the site after two Israeli Arab Druze policemen were murdered two Fridays ago. And ever since then, the Palestinian leadership and Jerusalem's Muslim leadership have told worshippers not to enter the site in protest of Israel's security measures. Which somehow seems quite extraordinary because you think if security measures are up, it's in everyone's best interest. I think the the way the Palestinian leadership see it is that this isn't really an issue of security at all. It's an issue of control. It's an issue of sovereignty. It's not Israel's decision to make, according to them, because they don't see it as Israel's land. And news that Israel has taken down these security measures and Muslims are going to start praying at the Temple Mount once again is probably positive because it will help dial down the tensions. This this whole metal detectors thing at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, it's, it's total, of course, it's subterfuge. Both sides know it. It's an excuse. It's justification for outrageous behaviour. I mean, you go to any religious site, anyone who's been to the Western Wall, as I know you have, Phil, I saw pictures on social media of you only, only earlier this week, you went through metal detectors. Absolutely, you go through metal detectors. And I tell you, for nothing, I feel more secure for going Absolutely. through metal detectors. It's a reassuring presence. There's a West End synagogue we wrote about last year, metal detectors. You go to any any public building, metal detectors, of course. So it makes no sense whatsoever not to have them. So, of course, this is absolutely just justification for intolerable behaviour. And Abbas, as usual, has been the first person to acquiesce any responsibility. The only person, I mean, there's, the rule of law is limited anyway in the Palestinian Authority. But if any man has the responsibility to bring people back from the brink, it's him. And as usual, he refused to do so. What I think, if there's any good news that can come from this, it's, I mean, if you look back to Gaza in 2014, the kidnap and murder of those three teenage boys in the West Bank, Mm. that started to spiral out of control. And the next thing you knew, you had the, the, the worst conflict in the region for many years. It's very similar with the, the murder of this family uh, in the West Bank. Luckily, we haven't had that domino effect and that tinderbox hasn't erupted and turned into something worse. Cooler heads have, have prevailed and hopefully now this could be the end of this sorry chapter. Um, on to the next one. Well, we certainly hope so. And speaking of one sorry chapter, on to another. The other story that we're looking at this week, anti-Semitism figures are up by a rather depressing 30%. So where have these figures come from? Your CST, uh, Community Security Trust, this week they issued their half yearly figures. This is figures for instance January to June this year and they are up 30% compared to last year, 767 in those first six months. Now there's a lot of interesting statistics you could drill down here. There's one particular one that we've highlighted and that is the political motivation of some of these incidents. And of course there's a common myth these days that a lot of anti-Semitism is motivated and provoked not just by the far right and the the far left but also from Islamists and, and elements of the Muslim community. Well, the Muslim community are far behind the far right and the breakdown here, 115 incidents in six months from the far right, only 12 from the Muslim community. I think that really reflects that perhaps some of the the moral panics in the media about the lack of relationship between our our community and the Muslim community have been slightly over-egged. 
Well, no, it is actually quite important then. You could justify exactly why these figures have to be gathered and have to be released because people would be forgiven for thinking that certain members of the Muslim community would be in favour, shall we say, if that's the right term, of carrying out anti-Semitic incidents. And equally in the same measures, I'm sure there are some members of the Jewish community who would be, as it were, in favour of Islamophobia as well. Neither, of course, as we all know, is acceptable, but it just demonstrates just how important these figures are to correct that misnomer. The statistics have been called shocking, but I, th- I think the reality is for most British Jews that these aren't shocking. The increase in anti-Semitism is entirely expected because more people are reporting it. And you can see, especially online, there's increased anti-Semitism online. People are just going onto Twitter and firing all kinds of abuse. I think the reality is also with the Islamist anti-Semitism that many have learned to disguise their anti-Semitism with political rhetoric. They know the line. And that is why there are nearly 50 incidents with anti-Zionist motivations, that there's a lot of people in our community who would consider some of that anti-Semitic. Yes, it is interesting and slightly disconcerting, but hopefully we can all take comfort in the knowledge that actually, as we've said before on this programme, the UK is still, by and large, probably one of the safest places in the world for Jews to be. Let's try and shoehorn one more story in very, very quickly. We've heard a lot about gender pay gaps in recent time in light of the figures that were released by the BBC, but it would appear as though our own community don't fare much better for it. Laura Marks, who's uh, one of the leading female voices in the Jewish community many times on this show, has written a very interesting piece for us this week where she's saying that the BBC pay gap is mirrored in the Jewish community, noting particularly that the new head of the Jewish Leadership Council, Jonathan Goldstein, has made it one of his big pledges to tackle that disparity. Next April, it's going to be law that any organisation with 250 or more employees are going to actually have to reveal the pay. So I don't think there are many Jewish organisations with that many employees, but some of our bigger organisations will obviously sit up and be taking note when that happens. Oh, well, if I may just throw in a caveat as an employee of the BBC, I think that this is all a fairly new phenomenon for most of us to have to start publishing figures. And I dare say that even the people at the top possibly didn't even realise how much there was a bit of a problem when it came to gender pay gap. But I have no doubt that they will rectify it in due course. So thank you both very much indeed. That unfortunately is where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've been hearing, a group of Orthodox rabbis have called for a boycott of the JW3 Community Centre in London. In an open letter, they say, We are of the strong opinion that a red line has been crossed in launching campaigns and initiatives that promote lifestyles and behaviours forbidden and condemned by the Torah. It's believed that the comments relate to their Gay W3 events, which happened back in March. And now, thankfully, it's not very often I have to say this on at the Jewish Views, but actually nobody from either side of this story wanted to speak on the show this week. So instead, I have been speaking to journalist Jenny Fraser, who wrote the article, so I can find out more about it. And I started by asking Jenny to remind us exactly how this debacle started. This whole problem begins with a lecture given by Rabbi Joseph Dweck, who is the senior rabbi of the Spanish and Portuguese community in Maida Vale. And he gave this lecture in Hendon, actually, to a packed audience in May. It was part of a series of lectures that he's been giving. And this one 
was to explore what the Torah said about homosexuality. And he prefaced the lecture with a very long caveat about how delicate a subject this was and how he knew that everything he said was going to be contentious in some way, but he put a great deal of thought into what he was saying. He put a great deal of thought, but of course, unfortunately, a great deal of thought that actually provoked some of his rabbinic colleagues, didn't it? That's correct. About two weeks after the initial lecture, when reports of what he had said started to appear in the Jewish press, a rabbi from one of the Sephardi communities in Godas Green gave a two-hour lecture to his congregation to say in very, very tough terms why he thought Rabbi Dweck was wrong, not just about the contents of that particular lecture, but he questioned many other halachic rulings that Rabbi Dweck had given over the time he has been in London. But it is important to obviously clarify that a rabbinic hearing has been and gone and it has been concluded that Rabbi Dweck is allowed to carry on in his position as the head of the S&P Safadi community, but with certain conditions. That's absolutely correct. There was a great furore which developed into a three-continent fight and it fell to the chief rabbi who, let it be noted, is the spiritual head of most Ashkenazim in this country. He doesn't really have any authority over the Sephardi communities, but it fell to Chief Rabbi Mervis to assemble a group of people. And I think it's quite important to say here, this was not a bet din. This was a review committee. And they spent a long time talking to Rabbi Dweck and discussing the various rulings that he has made. And at the end of this process, yes, they agreed. He is to stay in his position within this a Spanish and Portuguese community. But he has volunteered to submit many of the things that he might say in future uh, halakhic rulings about which there might be some doubt He's agreed to submit those to uh, Dianim um, and and see if they can authorise what he has to say. He's also stepped back from being a member of the Sephardi Bet Din. Now, there are going to be those listening who question, why is a story about JW3? I mean, obviously, people will be able to hear from the nature of what happened with Rabbi Dweck and probably put two and two together, and I'm sure they'll come up with four. But why is a story about Rabbi Dweck suddenly the attention being now turned on to JW3? Well, it's because the, 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 the linking mechanism in this is the fact that the Sephardi Kashrut Authority provides supervision for all the food which is sold and disbursed at JW3. They are the supervising authority for Zest, the main restaurant in the community centre. They are the supervising authority for the off-site kosher catering, which JW3 now does. And in the last few months, they had a Sephardi pop-up restaurant, sorry, a, a Syrian pop-up restaurant 
in the in the grounds of the building, and that was also supervised by the Sephardi Kashrut Authority. Now, the problem is, it appears that during the deliberations about Rabbi Dweck's future in his post, the fact that the Sephardim give Kashrut supervision to JW3 was raised in those discussions. And you might logically think, well, one thing's got nothing to do with the other. But the implication was that if things were to be found against Rabbi Dweck, it would put the Kashrut status of JW3 in doubt. Would those rabbis on the Sephardi Bet Din continue to authorise the Kashrut? And this is also linked to the event that JW3 held a few months back in March where they called it GayW3 and it was a look at the decriminalisation of homosexuality marking 50 years since then and how it has affected, for better, for worse, the Jewish community. Yes. Well, you know, those two things, effectively, the cashier status of JW3's restaurants and the event that they, well, series of events that they held in March, marking the decriminalization of homosexuality, that created, if you like, a a perfect opportunity for people who were not keen on the things that Rabbi Dweck had said in his May lecture to pursue the case even further, despite the fact that he's now, to some extent, been exonerated and kept his job for some people, possibly, this gave them the lever to say, well, no, we still don't agree, we're still not happy. The problem is that this subject is obviously incredibly delicate because to demonstrate the reason why we are obtaining your expert knowledge on this subject is because we, the programme, have approached both JW3 and nearly all of the rabbis listed in said letter to appear on this program and actually everyone has come back saying they would rather not talk to us about it which i don't ever remember happening in the history of the jewish views that nobody from either party has come back saying they don't want to talk about it but yet for something that has caused so much uproar so much upset it's clearly not going to just go away overnight is it this is quite a and almost a problem without a resolution, potentially. Well, I think that um, perhaps, I'm not sure, but I think that perhaps some of the people who signed that letter, and I do know that it it was signed uh, several months ago, but it's just been made public now. Some of the people who signed that letter might be having second thoughts. And the fact that it has created such a public storm and that Chief Rabbi Mervis has asked people to consider very seriously what the effect of this dispute will have on Jewish unity. Uh, There are few enough of us Jews as it is in this country uh, without having a really serious squabble amongst ourselves And I think that with the advent of the nine days and with having in mind the idea of Jewish brotherhood and Jewish unity, 
a lot of stepping back is being done at the moment. See, that's what makes this whole situation so desperately sad, is that the truth is the age-old adage of one Jew, three opinions very much still stands. We are people who not so much argue with ourselves as in a community, but argue amongst our own beliefs and thought processes. We do offset what we're taught by halakhic law versus what's seen in everyday society. And subsequently, it means that we do have this real dilemma where we're pulled between a rock and a hard place. But to see it almost community-wide, when there are enough people who aren't of the Jewish faith questioning everything we do, just makes this whole thing even more desperately sad, doesn't it? I think it's sad, but I also think that, I hope that perhaps the very public row has been a wake-up call for those who wish to settle scores in public. And, you know, there would have been ways to deal with opposition to what Rabbi Dweck said in the first place in a private manner rather than delivering lectures, other rabbis writing furious letters and denunciations, it became extremely personal and unnecessarily so, I think. And I do hope that this very, very feverish and febrile atmosphere has made people think twice and three times it's not necessarily a good thing to denounce others in public. That goes for both sides of this equation. Journalist Jenny Fraser talking to me there about a group of Orthodox rabbis who are calling for a boycott of the JW3 Community Centre in London, following what they call campaigns and initiatives that promote lifestyles and behaviours forbidden and condemned by the Torah. I would like to point out at this stage that both JW3 and many of the rabbis on that letter were invited to take part in this programme, but all parties did decline. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by founder of West End Travel, David Siegel, and lawyer, Denise Lester. They'll be discussing the calls for the boycott of JW3 by a list of Orthodox rabbis, as we've just been hearing. Plus, Diana Toman should be speaking to Walter Bingham, the Guinness World Record holder as the oldest active speech radio broadcaster. But first, wouldn't you know it, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival is nearly upon us once more, and amongst the many acts appearing there this year will be Danny Lobel. He's set to make his debut at the Fringe with the show Broke as a Joke, and arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Danny to find out more. She started by asking Danny to tell us a little bit about his background. I'm originally from New York, and if you want to go all the way back, I'm from Queens. And then we moved to Long Island. And uh, and I grew up in New York for most of my life. And you've got some, in your background, you've got some Scottish blood, is that right? My mom is from Glasgow, Scotland. Aha. Uh-huh. And-, and you're a Jewish Orthodox raised. That's correct. So tell us a bit about your background. What is it a typical Jewish background? Would you have a bar mitzvah? What's your family like? Yeah, I don't know if it was a typical Jewish background, but it was a very colorful and interesting Jewish background. We went to a Moroccan Sephardic shul in Long Beach, Long Island. I was bar mitzvahed. I went to um, a Orthodox Zionist school called the Hebrew Academy of Long Beach. 
growing up. And I also spent a good deal of time in Scotland, and my family there is involved with the Chabad in Scotland, Rabbi Jacobs. Right. And so I've had exposure to so many different great flavors of Judaism. That's wonderful. And were you educated in a kind of stagey way? Was it was there a sort of theatrical element or did you develop that on your own? I think that's on my own. It's just I laughed at the question like I was educated in a in song or something. Oh, uh, yeah. Actually, that would have been better. That's the way of teaching. But so you were not on like a just typical stage school that would take you into you imagine some of these LA schools are all terribly um theatrical. Oh, yeah, no, no. And and the schools I was in were all in New York. So I didn't move to L.A. until you know, five years ago. But before you do that, before we get into the comedy, because we really want to hear about this, I hear you've had some hilarious different types of jobs to, to make money. Tell us a bit about those. Absolutely. So there's been a bunch of them. I tried to become a hairless cat breeder. Okay. I wound up... Uh, the cat being hairless, not you. <laughs> it's very easy the other way around. All you do is shave your head. Yeah. Any cats. I found out about these cats called Cornish Rexes. First of all, I was working selling light bulbs as a door-to-door light bulb salesman in Manhattan to make money to pay my way through college. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. It was miserable. First of all, everybody already had light bulbs. I never went and encountered one dark store, which would have been like the holy grail for a door-to-door light bulb salesman. Like, they're like, oh, thank God you're here. Or somewhere with a chandelier. (laughs) Had one or two missing or something. So so that didn't work. And what else did you do? I also, I sold audio cassette tapes on Broadway for Jackie Mason. Oh, wow. Did you, was he an icon of yours? Was he somebody you wanted to be like? Or was it just a job? Well, no, he was an icon of mine, but I didn't grow up knowing about him. The only comedian I knew about growing up was Jerry Seinfeld because he did stand-up comedy on his sitcom in the little bits that led in and out of commercial. So I learned that stand-up comedy existed from that. And I didn't know that anyone else did it at the time. But as I got into the world of stand-up comedy and started to learn about it, Jackie Mason quickly became a hero of mine. Yeah, he's and, he was a great he's a great comedian. I think as he I don't know if he's hung up his um is he still going? Hung up his microphone? No, he's yeah. still going, thank God. He's still going and funny as ever. Excellent. So what else did you do before before you decided to turn to comedy? Well, kinda you name it. When I was a kid in school going all the way back, I used to make my own comic books and photocopy them and sell them to kids in class. I walked dogs for a living. Um, I used to sell these lighters on the boardwalk, cigarette lighters that I got at the wholesale market in Manhattan, and laser pointers. I did pretty much anything I could, and and any kind of innovation. I started a magazine that failed, but we ran for three and a half years and did 50,000 issues of copy, uh, uh, copies an issue, rather. And, yeah, I mean, uh, you name it, I've done it. I've worked in all kinds of food service jobs and... And old so you, age homes. You took all of this experience, all this wonderful life experience, and you decided to kind of hold it up as comedy, something that you could almost laugh at yourself. Is that right? Or did, was it something else that brought you to the comedy? Absolutely. I think my show, it's not self-deprecating, but I am kind of having a good laugh at myself and the experiences that I've had. You know, it's all pretty funny. Life is life is all in how you perceive it. Exactly. So you, you, you know, you can perceive your life as, as depressing, 
given certain circumstances, and then you'll naturally become depressed. But if you look at things in a brighter way and in a funny way, then you can find the comedy and you can find the good stuff in everything. And that's what you did. You found you found the, the humor in it. Exactly. And tell us a bit then about how did you get into the comedy world? Did you have to... It must be quite a, quite a hard world. There's a lot of stand-ups around. Yeah. It's funny because people always say that and I always wonder if that... To me, that doesn't feel like why it would be hard that, that there are more stand-ups around because I don't think that that's something people say about doctors or anything. Like, No, it that's must true. Be tough with all the doctors out there. It's like, well, as long as they're all healing people, I feel like, you know, it's going to be all right. So I always think it's funny when people say that about stand-ups, like, because every every comic is on their own journey, and as long as they're making people laugh, there's always room for them, you know? Yeah. And you start, so this this is your latest, your, your Broke as a Joke. Right. And tell us a bit about that. Um, well, these, this is a collection of, of stories and adventures that came out of a result of being broke. None of them would have happened if I had money. And uh, in a way, I, I saw that as such an incredible thing that I was sort of blessed to not have money all that time. Otherwise, I would have been deprived of all these great stories. And certainly the name, the, the name of the show anyway. Right. And you decided to come to the Edinburgh Fringe. Right. For people that don't know about the Edinburgh Fringe, can you give us a flavour of the place and um, who, what sort of kind of people typically go and what it's, what it's about there? Well, I've, I've visited it. I've never done a show in it before, but what I've seen, it's, uh, it's very exciting. The streets are bustling with people and street performers and people are, are breathing fire and throwing swords around and doing mime and contortion and juggling. And then the theaters and bars are all packed with, with creative people doing all kinds of shows and telling stories and jokes and and singing and putting on plays. So it's a very exciting place to be. It's all bustling. And I understand that people don't just go to, you don't just book a show. People are going to kind of seven or eight in a day. You sort of book up your day from, from show to show. Yeah, it's a very cool kind of reality to put yourself in where you're in a city to sort of absorb art. Yeah, and a lot of comedy there. A lot of com- comedy acts are going to be there. Or, or are they mostly com- comedians? Right. There is actually going to be a pop-up Jewish kosher, I should say, restaurant on the Tuesday lunchtime. So if you're going to be there on the Tuesday, I'll absolutely be there for sure. I got that email. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> Salt beef sandwiches. Salt All beef right. sandwiches, exactly, because what, what venue is, is not going to want that. Where is your actual venue? It says it's the Jury's Inn. That's right. I'll be at the space at Jury's Inn, which I don't know how to direct people to it better than that because I'm still fairly unfamiliar with Edinburgh, the city. But if you if you Google it or go to the Edinburgh Fringe website and type in my name or Broke is a Joke or the space the jury's in, all the info will come up on there. And I'll also have a link up on my website later today at dannylabelle.com. Excellent. Well, look forward to coming to hear you. Good luck with it. Comedian Danny LaBelle talking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about his debut at the Edinburgh Fringe, Broke as a Joke. And if you would like more information, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment, we'll be this week's schmooze. Remember to tune in to our live stream every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. It's just one of a number of ways that you can share your Jewish views with us. 
Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all of those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, I think it's reasonable comment to say that Walter Bingham has accomplished rather a lot in his 93 years. He was on the Kinder Transport. He's a decorated member of the military. He's been an actor and not to mention a radio show host as well. Well, his latest achievement recognises the latter in the most impressive of ways. He is now officially the Guinness World Record holder of oldest living talk show host. Sorry, Clive, bit of a way to go yet. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Walter following his award. And Diana started by asking him to tell us how it all began. I started many, many years ago helping out trying to get my foot into somewhere and then uh, many years later i went on the telephones you know on these uh, live live shows uh, what do you want to talk about i'm sorry that's not what we are discussing right now i wondered what you thought might be the biggest changes that you've noticed working in all your years in radio Today, of course, we're, everything seems to be on podcasts. There's less live radio and more pre-recorded and uh, podcasts. Also, of course, one of the most important changes is editing. It was reel-to-reel, and we had a china graph, white china graph, and you marked the reel, and then you cut it, and you spliced it, and I still have the tape and everything here to do it with. But in those days, there was a special little gadget and you put the tape in it and then you cut it with a razor blade. and Like you would do with films. More or less, yes. And that was what you did, what you did with sound. You did broadcast in England as well, I know, didn't you? <laughs> On early Jewish radio. I did broadcast in England. That's where I started. And, and then eventually got to Jewish radio for some time I hosted Spectrum Radio. And then there was another station called Sound Radio, which uh, broadcast on FM and based in Hackney. And I was broadcasting on that. Do you notice a difference between broadcasting in Israel and broadcasting as it was in England? Is there much difference or is it virtually the same sort of techniques? It's all the same, and uh, there's no, no difference. The equipment's a little bit better, and so on. But uh, I, I now do my my podcasts from my uh, own uh, studio here, my own office, uh, where I have all the equipment, and uh, and then I edit it. Well, uh, let me say the difference for me personally is that once upon a time you had people who could help you research and uh, help you edit. And here I do everything myself. (laughs) This world record, did you apply or did someone nominate you? No, there's no question of nomination. The world record, Guinness, they research it very thoroughly. At one time, uh, one of uh, my friends had tried to get them to research that I'm the oldest journalist they tried. And then I wrote to them and I said, look, how about the oldest broadcaster? And they said, send us the evidence. 
And it took me 11 months, and that was very difficult because for normal world records, they have inspectors. You know, they measure up how far you jump or how high you jump or, or how big is your cat and all that kind of thing. Indeed. Whereas here, this was age-related, and I had to prove age, and they didn't believe me, you see. So I sent them, I have two passports, I have an Israeli and a British passport. I sent them both passports, and then they came back and they said, no, no, no. We can't accept passports as evidence of age. They said you can get a passport without a birth certificate, which I've never heard of. So I had to send a birth certificate, and the interesting thing there was, it was a birth certificate issued much later by the Nazis, and it carried my old name, because of course I changed my name when I was in the army, in the British army. And that's another story. And then I sent them my naturalization certificates to become British and eventually that worked and it took 11 months to get this Good heavens Walter tell me was there a ceremony or did they just send you a certificate or what? They send you the certificate and that's it now if you want to get into the book the Guinness Book of Records you have to uh, write to them and send them for it. I haven't done that yet and uh, it's a business for them if you wanted another certificate it costs another £25 or something you know, I but see. I can have copies I hope you're going to take it a little easier in the future let me, let me just give you one quote people ask me <clears throat> to what do I ascribe my agility, my mental agility my physical fitness and I tell them that uh, I don't eat garlic you. And then everybody falls off their chairs. But actually, it's genes from God. And uh, I must tell you that on a good day, I feel so well. On a good day, I feel like 40. On a bad day, like 50. Broadcaster Walter Bingham, the Guinness World Record holder for being the oldest living talk show host, speaking to community editor Diana Toman there. Extraordinary. Let's get this into some sense of perspective, shall we? I have a total of 59 years to catch up with Walter's amazing achievement. I'll let you do the maths. But from all of us at The Jewish Views, muscle off to him. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Tony Honigberg and me today are founder of West End Travel, David Siegel, and lawyer Denise Lester. The subject today is based on the news we heard earlier on in the programme. A list of Orthodox rabbis are calling for a boycott of the Jewish Community Centre, JW3, after calling into question their Gay W3 event, which took place earlier on this year. The question is, how far can the laws of halacha carry the opinions of many Orthodox Jews in this day and age? We understand that traditions are there to be observed, but there are now laws of discrimination that need to be taken into consideration, as well as meaning that it's a very fine balancing act. Denise, let's start with you. Can you understand why a group of Orthodox rabbis are worked up about this particular issue? I can, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I share their view, although I respect their right to express themselves. We live in a society where there is freedom of expression. I mean, my own opinion is that it's not necessarily 
appropriate to call for a boycott of a centre, JW3, which is vibrant and which offers a Jewish space, including a strictly halachically kosher space for people to eat, schmooze and meet because of an historic event which may not be acceptable to a certain strand of Anglo-Jewry. People have the concept of personal choice. It doesn't mean to say that just because something is not acceptable, the whole place is verboten. So I think there's been, you know, it's a hyperbolic and an extremist position to take as a consequence of something that's occurred historically. But of course it's because they believe in it absolutely sincerely and purely. Absolutely, and I respect their right to express their point of view, That, but there is the dignity of difference and there's the dignity and concept of multi-branded, multi-strands, a faith of Judaism, and also there is the concept of Klal Yisrael and of Avodah and our collective responsibility for each other. So I am deeply dismayed by this stance because I think one Jew has a collective responsibility towards another Jew. We we also have to remember that the JW3 was built as a collective centre for Mm -hmm. all Jews, no matter what whether you were orthodox, what denomination you were, but for everybody. A bit like I understand that Vivian Duffield built it on the same basis as the New York Jewish Community Centre. Absolutely. It's built on it. Have we forgotten that, or have these Rabonim forgotten that? Well, I think... Or did they not look at that in the first place? It's basically two views which are both have their own right in what they say. What do you think, David? It's a very awkward subject to talk about. Um, as it so happens, I was at Israel Synagogue on the night that Rabbi Dweck gave that so-called famous lecture, which caused so much grief, so much hassle, so much irritation, if you like, amongst the Orthodox community and even in the wider circle. Some of the Orthodox Some community. of the Orthodox, absolutely. Yes. And then it triggered a worldwide reaction, which in my book was over the top. Mm. Um, there was very little, if anything, that crossed over that red line they kept, kept talking about. I, for one, will certainly continue going there. And I speak as an Orthodox man. Well, well, it, it, it is only because of the the, the Kashrut authority is the Sephardim Kashrut authority, yes, the Sephardim Bethdin, rather than the London Bethdin that, that gave the license to the rest of. So this is the only link. But uh, I, I think it's very tenuous. Tony, to if they read the small print, Rabbi Drecker actually stepped down from being a Dayan, if I'm not mistaken, of the Sephardi Bethdin. So in my opinion, and I may be wrong, he doesn't even have any direct connection no, with no. the Kashrut at JW3. No, no, but it's, it's just the general overall that they, it, they are just the Kashrut authority. just on a knock-on effect, can, and it's going on and on. Can I just widen this a bit? Because we have the original question, but I just want to preface what I have to say by saying it always troubles me when we have discord within the Jewish community when there is a position taken, a rabbonic position, which is out there in the public, which is a diktat saying don't do. And if you ascribe to our particular brand of Judaism, you must not do. And there are shades of this. There's shades of, you know, it's it's almost with the greatest respect. It's censorious and it's... People who want to eat in that restaurant, people who want to enjoy Jewish films, 
want to lead a modern orthodox life and the Sephardim community as far as I'm aware promotes that want to subscribe to culture including you know I've heard Sephardic music there have a space and we have a you know discord narrows us it doesn't make us wider we talked about the original question how far the laws of halakha can carry the opinion of many orthodox jews in this day and age i want to say to the listeners who don't know what halakha is 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 that it's a combination of the torah five books of moses oral written law and interpretation which can be rulings from time to time over time and space and they vary according to society and so there's always going to be an inevitable tension depending on how one leads one's life whether it in a more medieval and I use that word in inverted commas as opposed to a more modern way surely it's all right to accept whatever you want to accept as long as you accept that the other people have a right to accept what they accept. Absolutely. And so there's, in fact, a great storm is being made out of nothing. Mm. And it's, it's a question... And everybody must be allowed to think what they all want to think. Well, they are. This is, this is perhaps what the issue is, that the chief rabbi has just in the last few days, in the last week or so... There's, been, there's been basically yeah. a review, and Rabbi Dweck is continuing his position. But the wider landscape is... And I'm going to quote Lord Sachs's book, The Dignity of Difference... And one has, you know, one has uh, Talmudic discussion and the evolution of halacha, be it from a macro or micro level, when somebody goes to see a rabbi and seeks a ruling on any individual thing, is a process of thought, a process of consideration and a process of balancing various points of view. And also also one rabbi may give you a different view Absolutely. to another rabbi. They will give you a different interpretation but they should always, about the same issue. There should always be respectful dialogue and respect for the opposing position. Where I have an issue is where there is an imposition of collective rabbinic will. It's the harsh, almost ego positioning. It's gavura and... You know, there's a, there's a positioning which doesn't accord with the fact that Jews come in many strands and dimensions and we, you know, everybody is entitled to be a Jew whether or not, whatever inclination they have, whatever inclination they have. And Hitler made no distinction in the camps between types of Jews and Halakha would have would have not necessarily you know people in, live in to its, survive in its current state of halakha i think what the rabbonim are trying to say is that homosexuality i think it's okay on the surface but physical homosexuality is not allowed and i think that as it says in the in the torah the it does it says uh, in the uh, torah definitely and i think this the, is what their argument is that well, is that, their argument my my other problem i have is that i do they think we're all so narrow-minded? 
No, I don't think they do, Tony. I think they're just coming out with their particular view, and it doesn't follow that because that is their view that we all here have to subscribe to it. There's strands, people who will say they've got a valid point. And you know, this is not um, unique to the JW3, if you know what's going on in Israel with the gay pride. Well, Tel Aviv is the, is the second Aviv. largest gay city in the Correct. world. Correct. And, and as travel agents, we don't exactly promote that, by the way. But <laughs> having, having said that, um, they go marching along Ibn Gaviral Street in Tel Aviv, mm-hmm. And the religious people go crazy, or the rabbis. And they do similarly in Jerusalem when they're marching along Jaffa Road. And again, they go crazy. And it is their right to go crazy. It's everybody's right to do as they see. And it's also their right to be able to march along and... Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm going to say this. I've been to Gay Pride in Tel Aviv. I'm not gay. I have friends of mine who are, who may be practising, non-practising. I think the whole issue of female... Sexuality, male sexuality, inclination, suppression of inclination or whatever. You know, the amazing thing about Israel is that it is so multi-stranded. The amazing thing about London is it's so multi-stranded. And here we have a very narrow section of a Jewish community who is attempting to impose a boycott so that JW3 could suffer loss as a result of it, including financial loss, because they have sincerely held beliefs, which I entirely respect, but it still has the right to exist. Just but, don't go there. Just but, don't go well, there. Well, yes, that's how, that's how it's going to work out anyway, isn't it? Because, But as you've said, their views are utterly sincere. Whether or not they're right or wrong has nothing to do with it. That is what they honestly believe, and they think they're doing the right thing. But the answer is for the other side also to say, we believe we are doing the right thing, and we must both exist alongside each other. It's as simple as that. It's that there's yeah, the concept the, of humanity, isn't but, there? But the <laughs> issue, Clive, is that they're basically now saying, if I'm reading this correctly... Don't go along there. Keep out of the place. Well, they're and saying that to their own... Beliefs. To their own yeah. commute, to their own and segment. That, well, yeah. their own segment probably didn't ever go there anyway. Correct. And and people like me who go to a religious synagogue and we re- lead a religious life at home, I certainly will carry on going to JW3. Well, exactly. I will carry on going to their restaurant because I see no connection between the old issue, which hopefully has been settled, and this particular one, which will blow over till something else crops but up. You may, Correct. Exactly. But you may... You know, for those Sephardim, I think, I think it, it, it's called, it will cause pain to those who look to their Rabbonim who've made this decision, who've put well, out this public I, position. I'll tell you something. I, I am a Sephardi and I was in the Sephardi synagogue when Rabbi Dweck made one of the most wonderful sermons shortly after this controversy started. And it is the first, I think I've said this before on this program, and it was the most amazing sermon. And at the end of it, I've never seen this before in any synagogue, and I don't expect to see it again in any synagogue. The whole congregation, without exception, applauded him and shouted bravo and cheers. And that is from an, from the leading Sephardi synagogue in London. Mm. And they have a right to do that in exactly the same way as the ultra-Orthodox who have been saying what they've been saying have a right to say it. And we must all follow what Every, we believe. Everybody has a right to their own opinion, Absolutely. but we've got yes. to learn to get along with each Absolutely. other and respect everybody's exactly. opinion. But you'll, exactly. see, you'll see, Clive, that the ultra-Orthodox of Stanford Hill 
people well, would not go to JW3 anyway. No. And the yes. Sephardi will certainly not be put off. If anything, they'll go there in droves. Yeah. I have to stop right. you. Our time is up. So my thanks to our guests, founder of West End Travel, David Siegel, and lawyer Denise Lester. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash Jewish Views or on Twitter we are at Jewish Views UK. Now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. The book of Devorim Deuteronomy which we're starting now is the final book of the Torah. It is mostly one of the greatest speeches in history. The speech that Moses gave to the Jewish people just before they entered the promised land. It was a poignant moment for them and for him because he knows, because God has told him, that he won't enter the promised land, yet with tremendous grace and generosity, he blesses the people, knowing that he will not see them into the land he so much wanted to enter. And he has a tough job. They're difficult people. In fact, just a few lines into the book, he says, how could I bear your burdens and look after you? And he recognises and reminds himself that he had to share the leadership with others. The story is a combination of laws, laws which are to prepare the people as they go into the land, how they'll be able to live a moral, righteous life, while dealing with things they've never known before. Because in the desert, the manna fell from the sky, the water followed them around, and God dealt with their enemies. Whereas in the land, they are going to have to grow crops, contend with the weather, and with hostile neighbours. These laws enable them to retain a moral compass as they enter the fray of real life. And Moses uses those laws, illustrated by recollections in the story, difficult times, the golden calf, the spies, good times, the revelation at Mount Sinai, to create a sense of connection for a new generation who will enter the land. Moses teaches us an important lesson here, which is that in each generation, the message is eternal, but it must be packaged in a way that is appropriate, digestible and relevant to those who are receiving it. Goodness, just listening to Rabbi Belofsky there, how poignant is the discussion to be had about leadership in this day and age? It does seem that whichever way you turn, leadership is being constantly challenged and questioned and everything about it is just so up in the air at the moment. So it really is terribly poignant. Thank you very much to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks very much to our guests, journalist Jenny Fraser, telling us all about the JW3 debacle, comedian Danny LaBelle, who was telling us about his forthcoming show at Edinburgh Fringe, Broke as a Joke, the official world record holder of oldest living talk show host, Walter Bingham. Thanks also to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honickberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the link to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. And let it be known that this episode of The Jewish Views is dedicated to the memory of Susan Horn. 
I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.